Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store. Dot two guys to the dark tower came.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Talisman, Part 3 A Collision of Worlds, Chapters 20 through 26. Let's start the show. Traveling through Indiana, Jack and Wolf are picked up by a policeman and quickly taken to the Sunlight Home, a place for troubled boys. It is run by Reverend Sunlight Gardner who is not quite the man of God he claims to be. In fact, he is the twinner of Osmond from the territories, and also has a knack for torture. After being bullied, Jack and Wolf try to flip to the territories, but find themselves in a much worse place. Flipping back to the Sunlight Home, Gardner figures out who Jack is, but before he can deliver Jack to Sloat, Wolf escapes from detention and rescues Jack from two of Gardner's bullies but is shot and killed. We've moved into a new section here, Jake, called A Collision of Worlds, which is sounds like a DC comic books crossover event of some sort. Uh-huh. And unlike the last section, which was A Road of Trials, which had a couple of obstacles in Jack's way, the obstacles here in this first section are directly related to the territories. At first, we don't realize this, but the Sunlight Home is run by someone who has a direct twinner in the territories. Mm-hmm. When they flip over trying to escape Jack and Wolf, they end up in this place in the territories that is a horrible place. It's a mining pit of some sort which with enslaved people and gargoyles as taskmasters. And the threat of Sloat has been hanging over their head this entire time. In fact, Sunlight Gardener knows Sloat, kind of seems to work for Sloat. So not only is Sloat in both worlds a, a menace, but he runs a lot of evil stuff in the territories and apparently a lot of evil stuff in the real world. Yes. And there's no doubt that the Sunlight Home is an evil place. Just the way it's set up and I think one of the things we were both wondering as we came across this is, could a place like Sunlight Home exist in, if not today's day and age, in the 1980s today and age, in the in rural Indiana? I think that's a fair question. It seems that on the surface, the answer to that is yes, because the power structure, the authority system, police, these are all people who are working together to sustain the Sunlight Home. They, they turn a blind eye to the things that go on there. They pretend they don't know how it really works, what really happens, uh, because they're always getting these little payoffs. Here's 20 bucks, here's 20 bucks, whatever, and it's, it's fine by them. They're not the ones who have to suffer directly. I do think, though, that there is enough human capacity for cruelty and violence that a place like this could exist today. And not just in Indiana, but in any rural part of the United States. Yeah, I think you hear stories about how foster homes or group homes are not as 
well-meaning as you maybe think they are and people are cutting corners. I mean, whether or not it's to the extent that it is here in the Sunlight Home, we don't know. Obviously, it's probably played for a little bit of exaggeration, but I think all the things you point out about how everyone's on the take here, and there's probably some people who are just doing it for the money. Like, hey, I'm a cop. I'm going to round up these kids because I get 20 bucks a head, mm-hmm. and that's a nice little add-on to my salary. But then you wonder if there's other people like the judge who sort of sends them off there and the regulatory agencies who are like, well, maybe they're doing enough good and these kids are troubled enough that sure, it's not the best place in the world for them, but you know, this guy's a man of God, this sunlight gardener. So, you know, maybe his methods are a little extreme, but it's better than these kids being on the street. And I think that that might make it worse, right? At least, you know, with the cop, he's getting paid for it, but these other guys are just like, eh, trying to justify it. And I think that that's a lot of the problem here is that it's got this veneer of religion over it where Mm -hmm. sunlight gardener is doing this. I don't think it's like a national televangelist type of thing, but it does seem to be at least local, certainly regional, regional. Yeah. And so like people, Hey, look, my son's on TV. He must be getting the word of God put into him and he'll be fine someday. Little knowing that he's being spied on in his room. If he does wrong, he's going to get locked up in a a shed, a metal box out in the middle of a field, and his job entails picking up rocks all day long. Yeah, not the best uh, conditions at all. Yeah, and of course, no no place like this, whether it's the Sunlight Home for Wayward Boys or your, uh, I guess, average American prison, you're going to have bullies and that's a big part of the the power structure here. Sunlight yeah. Gardener is a bully himself. He's a very cruel man, but he can't do it all himself. In fact, it helps his image to let his underlings do the most, you know, bullying. And then he can kind of like somehow hover above that. Yeah. They know what he wants them to do, but he's never actually saying it out loud necessarily to like pick on that kid beat the crap out of that kid you know hurt that kid they just sort of have this unspoken communication to make sure that everybody flies right yep who will rid me of this priest right Mm -hmm. yeah i actually got confused in a couple places because i couldn't tell if some of these bullies were actual authorities at the sunlight home or if they were boys who were in the sunlight home who had just earned this place as sort of the top of the heap. And I think it's the latter. Yeah, I think it's the latter. Exactly. Because you're like, oh, they're prefects, but are they? Are they just people who've been there long enough that they've earned some sort of their their power is like, yeah, you're you're still one of the kids here, but you're the favored one. So you get to do this. And so that makes it a lot worse. And you had mentioned that they it ends up being like a bullying structure. And what's neat about that is that when Jack actually stands up to them, it's exactly what you're supposed to do to bullies, right? If you stand mm-hmm. up and show that you're not scared by them, that's how you can fight a bully off. And that seems to work for both Jack and and Wolf, at least for a little bit. Yeah. But you know, we've been talking about a few different things here, but I kept asking myself, what were King and Straub going for with this Sunlight Home thing? We already had the section called The Road of Trials, and this was Jack's initial part of his journey. And there were a couple of big trials. And he was stuck at the at the lousy uh, beer joint that he couldn't get away from it for a while. And then he almost got killed by 
by Sloat mm-hmm. with lightning bolts, and then he accidentally brought Wolf into the real world, and then had to deal with Wolf's transformation at, under the full moon. Lots of trials, and now this is just like yet another place where Jack is stuck. Like he is not moving west; he is frozen in place here and suffering tremendously doing it. I still like. Where's the ticking clock? Who's observing that, that there's a ticking clock? What do the characters gain by going through this experience? What do we as the readers gain by accompanying them on it? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, because a little bit of this seems like a, a cul-de-sac where not much is happening and they're stuck in one place for a while. And I, I think one of the maybe sub-layered thing is that King and Straub are talking about how these power structures and authorities can't be trusted. Hmm. Not only the governmental agencies, the police, the judge, but then also religion. Like this is not a shining example of a, a good picture of religion here by, by any means. And you know, I think King has always been a little bit wary of especially institutionalized religion as it is. And I think that that shows up here. And then I think it's also finally a way to, to, as you say, start to move things along by showing that there are connections between our world and the territories by making the main sub-boss here a, a twinner to somebody we've already met. I will say that that didn't hit quite as hard for me as it could have because I sort of had to remember like, oh yeah, Osmond was somebody that Jack had that five-minute scene with early on in the book. so. Um, the big reveal of like, oh my God, Sunlight Gardner is Osmond didn't have uh-huh. a huge effect. So I'm like, oh yeah, who is that guy yet? Oh, he was the one who whipped Jack. Yeah. Okay. Now I get it. Like if we had had more scenes with him, I think that that might've been a little bit better. So I, I do think that maybe King and Straub are starting to move things along. But again, we'll talk a little bit more later about like what was gained by this whole side piece with Sunlight Home because it, it wasn't a clear. What, what did you think that they were going for here? Maybe a little bit of it is that this young adult book maybe isn't so much of a young adult book after all. I definitely thought that, yeah. <laughs> I think that part of this journey, if it's going to be an homage to The Lord of the Rings a little bit, if it's going to be an homage to just some of the standard tropes of fantasy journeys, Jack is going to have to learn some hard lessons along the way. He's going to, and those lessons are going to impact him in ways that change him. Mm. And this is yet another opportunity for Jack to be in uh, like prison conditions. He's, he's literally tortured yep. on purpose. It's not just like he is poorly treated. He is outright tortured. And to the degree that he cares about Wolf is used against him to manipulate him. And he is a witness to murder in, in this in the sunlight school, and suspects that that has not the first time right. that this has happened. So I'm not sure how much of those elements you can pack into a book that is aimed at you know a teenage reading audience, and still say this is for that age group of an audience, because that's, that's some pretty heady stuff. Uh, agreed. Like it. Very much got torture porny between the the straight jacket, the burning of the of the webbing of his 
fingers of Jack and then eventually the threat of burning his his testicles with a a lighter like that got to be a bit much for me and I'm like I don't know if this is a book for children by any means um, I definitely I definitely thought that but I guess that's King and Straub upping the stakes here right yeah one thing though where I think it it maybe went a little too soft was um by the time Wolf went into berserker mode, I felt like I wanted, like my bloodlust was up. <laughs> I wanted there to be an all-out retribution kind of thing. And I think Wolf did hurt a lot of people and he did kill a couple of people, but I think he didn't kill enough. And so that's where like, maybe they're pulling their punches. I don't mm. know. Uh, so it's like, yeah, you've got torture porn on one page and then a werewolf who doesn't kill as many of the really bad people who maybe deserve to be killed as he could have. Like the he seems to be a creature with almost boundless strength and the and and very deadly claws and teeth. <laughs> you would think that he would just rip through that place and just be killing left right and center and instead he kills like what three people something like that yeah yeah so maybe 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 it's just veering back and forth young adult to adult to young adult and torture to not not enough murder I, I don't know so we hinted at this a little bit earlier but one of the main takeaways from this section is how the territories are a reflection of our world we've already gotten that from a lot of the talk especially that Jack's father, Phil, had done earlier, and the talk of twinners. But one of the things that Jack thinks about is when he's planning an escape from Sunlight House, he wants to get away from it as much as possible because he is afraid that he has this feeling if I jump while I'm in or flip while I'm in the Sunlight House, I'm going to be in a bad place in the other world. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that those instincts are right when he's able to flip uh, without the juice this time, he ends up in a place that is a horrible mining pit that is like you would think of a mining pit with all sorts of chemicals and fumes and it smells bad and it looks like the depths of hell. And there are literal gargoyles, it seems, whipping young boys who have been tortured and are, you know, doing this backbreaking work that's going to kill them. And He's like, nope, got to nope out of here and immediately flip back. Uh huh. This is sort of the, between that and the fact that Osmond is Sunlight Gardener and he knows, like, I know you from somewhere. Where do I know you from? All this is that very clean distinction that the territories are a reflection of our world. I think what you're trying to say is that the good places in our world, the territory version of those are like extra good. And that the bad places in our world seem to be extra bad. So it's it's not so much that we've seen particular places in our world that are nice that become like this magnificent transformation into the territories, but it's just that a field of grass in our world on a nice day becomes this like magnificent version of itself in the territories. The the air is sweet enough to be perfumed. The sky is a blue that makes you swoon. The 
that you know the the grass is just so soft you want to sink into it and, and take a nap whereas uh, a place like the sunlight home the territory's version of that is like the mines of mordor right it, <laughs> it's or like the temple of doom yes plus gargoyles <laughs> this is something that king has played with before i think maybe not to this extent where one place is a mirror for another but he has this idea that there are certain places that are inherently bad. Mm. Think of Jerusalem's lot, Salem's lot. Like there's nothing about that that would be good, right? Like evil has permeated the ground there. And that's what draws the vampires to Jerusalem's lot. It's what makes the people who live there do things that aren't great. Even in the stand, it's obvious that Flag is going to bring his people to Las Vegas because Las Vegas is the place of sin. And it seems natural that the bad people are going to congregate there versus Boulder, which is sort of seen as this hippy dippy, nice place to be. <laughs> and and so this is an idea that King has continued, but here, because we're working within two worlds, it has extra residence, I think. Yeah. That residence shows itself directly in Wolf. Throughout the previous section, he has had really bad reactions to things in our worlds. The smells have overwhelmed him. The loud noises have overwhelmed him. Just everything about it is is sort of poisonous to him. And in this section, we see it have an even more immediate effect in that it seems to be literally killing him. Yeah, yeah. Jack describes him as being less of himself, like he could see him sort of fading away. And not just fading away like he does when he dies, but like actual sort of like getting pale and just becoming a lesser version of himself. And so that's this added piece of this, that this this world is just sort of not good for Wolf. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because at first I thought it was just a matter of adjustment or or tolerance that not only is Wolf from a place that is extra nice most of the time and extra pleasant, but he is a creature of intensely powerful senses, mm. right? His sense of smell and hearing and eyesight, except for the fact that he needs uh, John Lennon glasses, <laughs> are so keen that w when you bring him into our world, everything that his senses are picking up on uh, are just that much more apparent. So I just thought that it was that, that it was, it was a matter of degree, that eventually he'd get used to it, just like. Jack gets used to the territories being so different, but in like kind of that pleasant way. Right. Eventually that that dials down, you know, like you, your your eyes readjust to the brightness of the room and you're okay. It seems that that's not the case. I think that for somebody from the territories who spends too much time in our world, it really is, as you said, poison. It is toxic. It is not a matter of degree. There's no amount of conditioning to iocane powder that will allow Wolf to survive in this world indefinitely. He needs to go back. Yeah. And unfortunately, he never gets the chance. The the other side of that, before we get into the the death of Wolf, is that Jack seems to be gaining something from the territories. Mm. It, it's the confidence, it's the look in his eyes. He seems enhanced in some way. Yeah, like he's imbued with a, a a kind of magic, right? Yeah. And it, it's not just the goodness that you're speaking of, because I don't know if, if confidence relates to goodness, but I think it's something about that magic, like you said, that is what is giving him 
more of a presence around others and sort of moving him along this hero's journey, which I think is the the next section we want to talk about, is that Wolf ends up dying here. And I think a key part of the hero's journey is that there has to be some sort of sacrifice that the hero learns from, gains from, and continues on. The most obvious example for people our age is Obi-Wan Kenobi has to die in Star Wars so that Luke can learn and, and move on from there. And and in this case, it's Wolf that dies. I thought it was Luke's aunt and uncle who died. That was oh, yeah, it is Baru. Yes, it is Aunt Baru. <laughs> but their death is just senseless. That just kicks him off on his journey. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about sacrifice immediately on the journey. True, true. And to some extent, I don't know, maybe think Spider-Man and Uncle Ben, Jack sort of, I don't think he brings this on himself, but Jack is doing a lot of things to ensure that Wolf stays alive. Like he doesn't want to to give up any secrets because if he does so, Sunlight Gardener said, we're just going to kill you and Wolf, or, or we're going to kill Wolf and take you to Sloat. And so in trying to keep some of those secrets and endure the torture, he's trying to protect Wolf. And ironically enough, that's what's going to bring about Wolf's death because Wolf is going to escape in an effort to protect Jack. Right. Or as he so poetically puts it, to save the herd. Yeah. And who said Wolf was no poet? <laughs> I, I think Wolf said that, didn't he? Or did maybe Jack? I, I, I thought the narrator said that. Oh, well, somebody did. That's for sure. The unknown narrator. Could have been King. Could have been Straub. This is a, a bit of a an echo of what I was getting at earlier, but when I was asking what, what do the authors... But what are the authors going for here? It's what does Jack gain by the suffering? A dead wolf. Well, he didn't even gain that because wolf just faded away. Yeah, that was sort of weird. Right. It also made made it easy for him to not have to worry about, you know, like digging a hole under the, the rocky soil in, in Illinois. At, uh, I'm sorry, Indiana at that time of year. That's true. I think to answer my own question, I think perhaps it's the ability to flip without needing the juice. This is part of that important growth. He, Jack uh, put it in like video game parlance. He just leveled up now. And it took this amount of pain and suffering, this huge sacrifice to get to that next level so that he can face perhaps an even more powerful foe or an even greater challenge later in the story. Yeah, you've got to think that Wolf died for a reason. And the only one that I could think of was exactly this, this ability that Jack has to to flip. Because otherwise, what would be the point of this entire section other than the torture porn, right? Mm-hmm. The only thing that has changed from when Jack first met Wolf till now is that now Jack has this new ability. When he met Wolf, that's when he lost the juice. And now with Wolf dead, he now has that, he has that ability now that he did not have before. But nothing else has changed other than moving a couple hundred miles to the west from Ohio to to Indiana. So a good storyteller is going to have a reason for the sacrifice, and this is the best that we can come up with. And I think that's probably pretty important, right? Yeah, yeah. Snowball had said, like, hey, you can do it without the juice. They've been hinting at it all long. And obviously, it seems like probably his father and Sloter are able to do it without some sort of juice as well. So it seems like this would be a key piece and will help him in the future. If he doesn't gain anything else, then what's the point of having 
having Wolf die. And I think that this is probably the best reason. Assuming that Jack is a hero and he's on a hero's journey and he doesn't just sort of fail and, and not succeed in his quest <laughs> for the talisman. Now, wouldn't that be a bummer? Yeah. Turns out next chapter, Jack dies too. It was, it was all, it was all a faint. Jack becomes a Sith and, uh, oh well. <laughs> the sand. Is it time to talk about some Dark Tower thinnies, Sean? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, one of the ones I wanted to call out was that the maximum age for Sunlight Home is 19. And that's according to the line, Old Sunlight Gardener generally takes them in at 12 and turns them loose at 19. I got to wonder if he actually does turn them loose at 19. Because oh, they, they probably never, yeah. never uh, lived that long. No, they either don't live that long or they're shipped off somewhere else. As in a mine? Yeah, as in a mine. Because, uh, yeah, I, I bet they're never heard from again. During all that torture porn, there seemed to be a a reference to the Dark Tower. And that is when Sunlight Gardener is trying to guess where Jack is from, there's the line, On Golgotha, the place of the skull. Also the place where the man in black and... Roland had their palaver. That's right. It was a very key location. And I believe a place where Roland slept for or had his vision for like hundreds and hundreds of years. That's right. A purple blade of grass that would uh, fit pretty nicely in the territories. Yeah, I think it would. Another thinny is that the staircase in the Sunlight Home is carpeted with a rug that has a rose pattern. Hmm. And uh, my my ears always perk up anytime roses are mentioned in King books. So just picturing a a runner carpet up the stairs with red roses on it. That kind of makes me think of the the field of roses leading up to the tower, right? There you go. Or in this case, up to the attic where the, the cook the prison goes cells and are the prison cells. But then there's an attic above that where I think the cook. Uh, when he hears Wolf start howling, he's like, yeah, I'm out of here. Yeah, they, they don't pay me enough for this. <laughs> this final one is when Jack is able to flip into the territories. Reality seemed to fold and buckle about Jack for a moment. He felt that he had been jerked back into the territories, but that now the territories were evil and threatening, and that foul smoke, jumping flame, the screams of tortured bodies filled the air. I can almost hear that whistling of a thinny behind it as mm. uh, as we get that description. Yeah, I dig it. I think it's time for some yucking it up. What do you got? Because I don't have one. Oh, okay. Well, you might think that I'd pick one of the many instances of torture, but instead it's the simple description of a Burger King Whopper that got to me. <laughs> Jack hurried outside, still trying to swallow his mouthful of ground chuck, limp bread, pickles, lettuce, tomatoes, and sauce. Other than the word limp, there's nothing really gross in that sentence, but I think it's the combination of all those things together. It just seemed like very unappetizing when you describe it like that. It could be because I'm just not a fan of Burger King Whoppers either. That line just made me think of the the meme where it's like, the picture of the Whopper and the actual Whopper. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what they promise and what you get. Uh, it doesn't matter to Wolf, though. He eats one with the cardboard box as well, doesn't he? 
Yeah, it's a little extra fiber. Yeah, he's like, whatever. I mean, to be fair, it probably tastes just the same as a Burger King Whopper. <laughs> hey, now, they're flame broiled. That is that is true. You don't have a yucking it up, so let's get right to thanking our patrons. They can support the show by getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. I think it is now time for some fun stuff. What you got for fun stuff, Sean? So early on when they enter into Indiana, Jack and Wolf are on French Lick Road. And French Lick is a small town that's best known for the birthplace of Larry Bird, the great Boston Celtics player. And I just thought that, that was neat. Or fun, maybe. Or even fun, if you will. Yes. I'll take your word for that. I assume that your your information is accurate. I know who Larry Bird is. I know that much, but I did not know he was from Indiana. Yes, he is. Nor did I know that there is a place called French Lick Road. There's a great line, or at least there's a line I like a lot. When Wolf is on the hunt, he went down the stairs on all fours, silent as oiled smoke, eyes as red as brake lights. That is a good way of describing how menacing Wolf could be. Not mm-hmm. only does he howl and he's this giant creature with these claws, but he also has this way of sneaking around when necessary to hunt his prey, which he is about to do. I thought mm-hmm. it was I thought it was good as well. The pit that Jack and Wolf almost fall into when they jump back to the territories reminds me of the pit in desperation, oh. which also contained pure evil and had the it, the way that King or Straub described it was very similar with the the small road running around the ring of the pit uh, leading to the different caves. And in this case, it's not the cars that our heroes were driving around in desperation, but these giant cars that children are pulling with back-breaking labor. I, I thought maybe that there were some similar similarities there in the pits. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. The last item of fun stuff I want to call out is that I love the reference to the Incredible Hulk TV show, Mm. including the mention of David Banner. And I thought it was fun because, especially because I I loved that show, loved watching it when I was a kid. I'd already mentioned it or referenced it at least once talking about this book. And now here it is in the text. Yes. And now that Wolf is gone and Jack has to move on from the Sunlight Home, I can almost hear the haunting Incredible Hulk music. That's right, with the duffel bag on one shoulder and the thumb out on. <laughs> Love it. Yep. Okay, I think it's time for our other worlds than these. Mind if I kick us off? Go for it. I very recently watched the 2022 film 
see how they run. And it, it is a comedy mystery film directed by Tom George, and it stars Sam Rockwell, Sosha, how do you say it? Sosha, Sersha, Sorsha? Shershin. Shershi? No, I don't remember now. What do you think I am, Irish? Don't look at it because it's not how it looks. Sarsha Sarsha Ronan yeah it's Sam Rockwell Sarsha Ronan Adrian Brody Ruth Wilson and David Oyelowo and it's a fun Agatha Christie send up where the plot centers around the 100th performance of the play The Mousetrap and it's kind of cool because there's a little bit of trivia that or, or meta trivia here in the title of the movie, Christie originally titled her play Three Blind Mice, but because of some copyright issue, was forced to change it, and a friend suggested uh, The Mousetrap, so she changed it. So this movie, which is about the play, continues the nursery rhyme of Three Blind Mice, See How They Run. And uh, I thought that was a really nice little, little nugget. Um, it's a fun movie. I, I had a few laughs. And if you are in any way an Agatha Christie fan, you'll love all of the references and send-ups and, and things uh, in this movie. It's, uh, it's fun. Check it out. And where did you see that? I saw it on HBO Max, or Max, depending on when you listen to this episode. Yes. I think my wife and I will check it out. She is a big Agatha Christie fan, and I read a lot of Agatha Christie when I was younger. So looking forward to that. I just got finished watching the 2023 series Dead Ringer starring Rachel Weiss. Uh, this is a limited series that is based on the David Cronenberg movie Dead Ringers from the late 80s, I believe. And it was fantastic. Um, not just because of the gender switch from Jeremy Irons to, to Rachel Weiss, but sort of all the themes that they play on with the two of them being obstetricians and dealing with pregnancy issues and, and babies while also, also dealing with all the twin issues that they have. Um, it's visually interesting and just surprisingly funny mm. considering how disturbing it is. Um, and before I, watch this series, which again, I'll recommend is excellent. It's on Amazon prime. I decided I should watch the David Cronenberg movie because I had never seen it before. And that was also a fantastic movie. Yeah, it's a good one. After enjoying that and realizing, Hey, we also enjoyed dead zone when we talked about it a few months ago. Hey, why don't I just start watching David Cronenberg movies? There's a worse, there's probably worse ways to spend my time. This was very good. Um, I watched rabid, the brood scanners, Videodrome, A Dangerous Method, and Crash. And also I watched The Fly. The Fly is a really, really fantastic movie. Yes, it, I it, love it. It stands out from those other movies, all of which have really good things to say about them. And The Fly just, I think it's sort of this distillation of the Cronenberg ethics or our ethos for, for making movies but it has a romance to it that the other book the other movies don't 
Cronenberg is often thought of as sort of like an icy, detached director. And a lot of his movies are like that. Crash is specifically like that. Dead Ringers, I think, is a lot like that. But the the heart and soul of The Fly is the romance between Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum. And they're both just so terrific in that movie. And the themes of that just all work together just sort of perfectly into this crescendoing moment that is at once disgusting and heartbreaking at the end of the movie. So um, basically, I'm saying go see The Fly. And I think it's on HBO Max right now. Oh, really? And uh, if you could catch some of his other movies, uh, do that as well, because they all are pretty interesting. I did not mention some of his more recent movies, Cosmopolis, Eastern Promises, and History of Violence. Two of those are Viggo Mortensen movies in which he's fantastic, History of Violence and Eastern Promises. History of Violence is tip-top Kronenberg, yeah. too. That, yeah. is, that is a great, great movie. You've inspired me, Sean. I think I might have to go check out a, a, at least a handful of Cronenberg movies in the near future. Yes. And he's still making movies today. I know he's like in his late 70s, I think, but um, he had one come out last year and he's working on another one now. So, And he's got a regular role on uh, Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Keep up the good work. That's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and or Audible, which Jay and I just realized also has a review section that you can leave uh, comments and reviews on. And we thank those of you who have done so. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Talisman, Part 3, A Collision of Worlds, Chapters 27 through 33, and The Interlude. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Now that we got our our obligatory Weird Al commentary <laughs> out of the way, now we can get back to Stephen King. That's all right. Shall we begin? We shall.